0: Hello and welcome to Cybernia in association with Discover Science and Engineering. This week we're doing a special episode where we look back at some of the highlights of the year. First up, Sylvia suggested this piece from our very first episode from back in March. Dublin is going to be the European City of Science in 2012. Over 5,000 researchers, business leaders and journalists will visit Dublin next July to attend a week-long science conference. But there'll be plenty more happening besides, with a year-long programme of events on the cards. Back in March, we asked the City of Science director, Dave Fahey, to tell us what to expect in 2012.
1: Dave, tell me, what exactly is Dublin City of Science 2012?
2: Dublin City of Science 2012 is the title brand name that has been given to a series of events that will happen um, with a science theme. Uh, in Dublin throughout the year of 2012. Um, the major anchor event is a, a gathering of uh, scientists from all scientific disciplines um, from across Europe and beyond Europe, um, In which will happen in July from the 11th to the 15th uh, in 2012. Associated with that will be a broad program of other science related activities which will run throughout the year. So, for the purposes of Euroscience and Ireland, Dublin is the European City of Science for 2012.
1: Okay, and this is an event that has been running for a few years now?
2: Yes, the the Forum um, was first held in Stockholm in 2004 and has run every two years since. In 2006, it was in Munich in 2008, in Barcelona, in 2010, it was in Turin. And uh, so, Dublin gets to host it in 2012. Um, there, will, there is a bidding process going on at the moment for the 2014 um, hosting, but at this stage we don't know the outcome of that bid. We should know within the next few weeks.
1: OK, um, so is this event a bit of a coup for Ireland or is it a case of like the Eurovision where it's like, oh, no, we have to host this thing again? <laughs>
2: um, <clears throat> no, I don't think it's, it's, it's certainly not like the Eurovision and that we haven't won it for five, however many times before. It is a significant coup for Ireland. We um, had to compete with Vienna. Um, for the opportunity to host this, um, it was a very competitive process, and we're delighted to say that Ireland was the unanimous choice of the of the judging panel. And um, the Dublin, I'm sorry, was the unanimous choice of the Dublin, of the judging panel um, against a very competitive bid from Vienna. Um, So it is now a competitive process um, in terms of the desire to host the event. And there's a keen interest from lots of cities in Europe to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, It will be the biggest event of its kind in Europe in 2012. So it is very significant um, from Dublin's point of view.
1: So how many people, scientists and uh, members of the public are you expecting at the event next year at the conference?
2: Well, the conference itself, um, the July event, we expect somewhere in excess of five and a half thousand attendees over the five days of the of the program the vast majority of those will be um from outside ireland um they will all primarily be scientists although it is not restricted to scientists you simply have to have an interest in science um to want to attend um And there will also be a significant uh, gathering of international journalists international science journalists will attend. So we expect a couple of hundred journalists to be part of that group. So all in all, five and a half thousand plus Mm. will be here in July.
1: That's great. And is there a theme to the event? What kind of topics will be covered at the conference?
2: The conference is designed to be uh, an opportunity for a general scientific discussion. So it is designed to be as broad and all encompassing as it possibly can be. Um, the intent is to make sure that it's a, it provides discussions on all scientific disciplines from the physical sciences um, through to humanities and um, touching on the borders with culture. Uh, so we expect... As I said, uh, probably somewhere in the region of two to three hundred individual sessions over the over the course of the four or five days, including a number of keynote speakers, there are seven high level themes for the for the conference, and the sessions will be aligned along those themes. And those themes include things like food, energy, health, information, science, uh, assisting development, um, the frontiers of science, and so forth. So they're they're very broad brush themes. And the intent is to invite people to submit proposals um, along the lines of those themes.
1: Okay. And that call for proposals has just gone out? That call has
2: just gone out. It is available on our website. Um, It is available for downloading as a PDF on the website. So that's the first call that's gone out for scientific proposals. Um, As we go through the year, there will be subsequent calls for targeting other parts of the agenda, including careers, um, uh, science in the city, enterprise research, and a number of other uh, sub-programs that will form part of the agenda for the conference.
1: Okay. And then in terms of the public program of events, what can we expect to see happening next year?
2: Well, our intent is to try and create as much interest and noise and debate and discussion um, about science throughout the year as we possibly can. We will be associated with a number of existing events and activities Um, and those that have a science uh, theme already, we will be helping to promote their event and participating in it. Those that don't have a science theme, we will be hoping to persuade them to make science the theme of their events. So, for example, um, we will be strongly associated with the BT Young Scientist events, with SciFest, with Engineers Week, with Science Week. So those are, the, those are the, the obvious ones. In addition, we will also look at events like the St. Patrick's Day Festival, like the horse show, like the plowing championships, like theater festivals, street festivals, cultural festivals, um, activities that happen in a variety of venues throughout city, the city and the country. So um, community organizations, library networks. So as many um, nodes of engagement as we can possibly um, get together.
1: OK, so we can expect to see a lot of science next year in Ireland.
2: Yes, the intent is to try and keep science at the top of the public agenda in terms of, of discussions as much as we possibly can throughout the year. So our hope is to make sure that we, we get as much of the public engaged in just discussing science in general, um, um, You know, tease their curiosity a little bit about science as a topic, help people think about it as a possible career, help promote it, um, help raise the awareness of how successful Ireland has been um, with its science and research agenda over the last 10 to 15 years and generally just raise the awareness of science as an area and a theme and um, a career.
1: Dave Fahey, thank you very much.
2: You're very right. Next up, Trina suggested
0: our interview with Cathal Garvey from episode 11. The possibilities opened up by do-it-yourself biology are endless, from increased public interaction with science to useful applications that the industry might not think are economical. Also, Trina is fond of the idea that these are things she can do at home, alongside other crafts.
3: Hi Cahill,
1: and welcome to Cybernia, and we have a few questions for you today. Um, The first is,
3: uh, will you be able to tell us about DIY Bio, please? Certainly. Um, DIY Bio is uh, an emerging hobby where people are treating uh, more advanced techniques of biology than are traditionally done at home as an accessible hobby that they can start doing as amateurs Um, and it sort of encompasses biotechnology which would have been traditionally a big industry or government thing but taking it down to a level where people can start interacting with life you know in in, in, on a very deep level genetic level it also covers things do-it-yourself diagnostics uh, learning more about your own genome by actually exploring it yourself instead of asking someone's permission or uh, getting someone else to do the testing for you and uh, you know more traditional things like um, uh, what would it be called e- ecology like you know, bird watching would have been the traditional example but taking that a bit deeper and uh, start, starting to use modern techniques of rapidly analysing what sort of species might be around the place using techniques like PCR which I might discuss in a minute again um, or, you know, use, using internet-aided and crowdsourced techniques. So it's, it's like, uh, you know, the, the junction of traditional amateur biology, uh, modern lancotinology, and the internet, and all, all the social technologies that that enables as well. Cool. In, short, <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> and do you want to tell us more about PCR? I believe Open OpenPCR re- launched recently. Well, OpenPCR is, a, I mean, the project is over a year old now, but um, they've just shipped out their first test units, and hopefully I'll be receiving mine this week, so fingers crossed. Um, the PCR reaction is a critical reaction when working with DNA that essentially allows you to copy a target bit of DNA that you want to look at and study a bit further uh, out of the whole background. So our genome consists of billions of letters, but out of those letters we might only want a few sentences of dna that we really want to look in and analyze it might be something really important to you like your cystic fibrosis or breast cancer genes or it could be something sort of frivolous like a a, a gene that lets you um, smell a certain type of pheromone or taste brussels sprouts things like that um and without the pcr reaction it's extremely difficult to find a in order to study it the problem with the pcr reaction which makes it inaccessible well one of the main problems has traditionally been that the machines that do the job kind of like your photocopier uh, for paper, the machines that copy and paste DNA for you, called PCR machines or thermal cyclers, have been thousands of euro or thousands of dollars. Um, but at their most, they're actually pretty basic technology. Uh, when you when you really open them up and look inside, they just change the temperature for you regularly enough uh, according to a set program. And Open PCR is an open source hardware. Uh, those who know it will love that those keywords. But if you don't, if you've never heard of it, it's just a good set of keywords to have in front of anything. It's an open source hardware project. To generate a really cheap um, and extremely uh, functional PCR machine. So this thing it does as much as uh, the ones that I would have used in a commercial lab or in an, uh, a, sorry, an academic lab where I used to work. That would have cost thousands of euro, but would have had very little fee. And this thing now is a totally reprogrammable, versatile machine, which looks really attractive. It's highly mobile, and it costs only five hundred and twelve US dollars.
1: And how how might people get into doing uh, DIY bio?
3: Well, whether you're doing PCR or, you know, microbiology or anything else on that scale, um, I'm, you know, really trying to get a community going in Ireland, and I'd be more than happy to guide anyone else in Ireland through getting into the hobby and uh, getting involved at that level. I specialize in genetics and microbiology, and I have a website, IndieBioTech.com. However, for the the, the broader picture of DOI Bio, which can, I mean, that's anything to do with biology as a hobby. Um, there's an excellent website and mailing list you can, atch- you can reach them both through DIYbio.org um, and there's uh, the OpenPCR blog OpenPCR.org as well and uh, I mean the, the terms citizen science uh, sort of encompass the whole, the whole range of citizen scientific uh, hobbies or amateur efforts or even like, genuine research which includes DIYbio and there's a, a great new uh, quarterly magazine called Citizen Science Quarterly which is available at citizensciencequarterly.com um, which is, uh, I, they've published their first issue and they're going into their second now soon and that's a fantastic resource as well for people who are interested in pursuing it further.
4: how, how is the idea of... Um DIY bio sort of perceived by traditional um, biotechnologists and biology academics. How is there is there any kind of a friction there between the traditional and the open science crowds, or is everyone getting along nicely?
3: Well, you know that that's a I mean that's a really good question. Um, and it, it, at the moment, it's sort of divided because people very few people think it's irrelevant, and those who do are kind of widely you know, you could look at their arguments and they're a bit dodgy, like they they kind of want to pretend that nothing's happening and putting their heads in the sand, but most people are very sharply divided between those who think that it's a fantastic idea and it's the best way to get science literacy out there and encourage science communication, Uh, because there's always been this issue that science communication has often, it's often been, you go to a classroom full of people who are kind of maybe interested and you say, look at how amazing the science that I'm doing is, but then when you leave you haven't actually encouraged or told people how they can do science themselves. Whereas DIY bio is very hands-on. It's like, okay, look, here's what you can go home now and do or come in tomorrow to the community lab and we'll just have a bit of fun doing science. So it's a very engaging thing, and a lot of people are very... uh, They really approve of that. But then you also get, on the other end of the spectrum, people who feel threatened. Or people who kind of wanted to remain like a priesthood of biotechnology and uh, these are the people who you see standing up uh, calling for regulation and saying no individuals shouldn't be allowed to do this it's dangerous it's uh, unpredictable and you know they they don't want regulation of themselves they don't want regulation of anyone except individuals and a lot of that i think has to do with the fact that biotechnology is artificially expensive and it's artificially uh, cloistered and seems way more difficult than it really is Um, I mean it is difficult but it's not impossible for an amateur to get involved and i think a lot of people feel threatened so it's, it's very sharp divide
4: down the middle you're right i'm just going to quote here for something i read on your website earlier you say biotech can be used to create cheap antibiotics on site in africa to create biofuels from household wastes and to help us grow more food with less chemicals water and land however there's little commercial incentive to, to give us these freedoms for the best biotech to emerge individuals and communities must be enabled to engineer life can you talk a bit more about about that i mean what i gather you're saying is that um Biotechnology can um, solve many of the world's problems, but there's not necessarily a, a profit incentive for corporations to do it. So therefore, people need to take it into their own hands to learn these these skills.
3: Well, you know, it's kind of an old um, it, it, it's an old argument in uh, in people who've been in medical research or medical biotechnology, and it's I mean it's never been fully substantiated. But when you start thinking this way, it really seems very. Uh, very pervasive. You sort of wake up and look around and go, hang on, here's what the market's doing to us. If you imagine how much money is made on, for example, um, chemotherapy agents that effectively keep people alive without actually curing them. In many cases, I mean, chemotherapy does cure a lot of cancers. Uh, Maybe antiretrovirals are a better example. When you're talking about HIV, antiretroviral therapy generally just keeps people alive for a normal lifespan, but it doesn't cure it. Now, imagine what would happen if the companies that are currently making such an enormous amount of money selling antiretrovirals, and there is infinite demand for them at the moment, were to create a cure for HIV instead. I mean, these companies operate on very narrow margins because they invest all of the money that they make as profit. They don't operate themselves like a household. If HIV were cured tomorrow, the guys making the antiretrovirals would go completely out of business. So they don't want that to happen, and due to the way that drugs are sort of made and then um, w- what's the word licensed for use by the FDA and the uh, not the Euro- not the FDA but the European equivalent um, it means that it, only the large companies can ever afford to get a drug past testing anyway. So the companies who currently have no f- incentive to cure the world's worst diseases are the guys who are in the sole position of power to actually do so now i feel that we're looking at that and looking at uh you know when it comes to issues like um antibiotics for the poor i mean yes we can send antibiotics out to africa but it's very expensive and difficult to do so. It's a distribution problem. Antibiotics need refrigeration, so they're expensive to make, expensive to ship. We need to get them there and then get them down all of these really bad, I mean, when you, you don't, I mean, people don't realize that getting things into an African airport is only the first step. Getting them to the people who need them is extremely challenging as well. By the time the antibiotics get there, it's either cost you an enormous amount of money, which nobody really wants to front up to save people that they don't know in Africa, unfortunately, in real life. Um, Or, you know, it just doesn't happen. Nobody does it. So antibiotics are, they're always needed and never delivered. Now, the thing is, antibiotics are generally made by bacteria or fungi. That's where they were discovered, and that's where most of them are still made. If you can engineer a standard way that one bacteria that's really easy for anyone in the world to grow can make a variety of different antibiotics and you could have one for each medicine. You could just ship out a suitcase full of these things to a town and when that town's got them, they can make more and ship a suitcase to their neighbors, ship a suitcase to their neighbors. And you have one guy in the town who you train up so that he can say, look, this person has X disease. I use this open source, dirt cheap PCR machine, which people can practically flog at us to test what disease this person has, read down the list of what antibiotics work and grow up some of that antibiotic for tomorrow. And you're talking about being able to annihilate the distribution problem and get antibiotics where they're needed, when they're needed. Antibiotics on demand. Now, that's just when it comes to the medicine example. Biofuels, obviously, I mean, that's a whole different thing, but there is no commercial incentive from the guys who have the power to subsidize and make cheap solar or make cheap biofuels happen tomorrow. They're the oil companies. They don't want that to happen. So, I mean, where there is no commercial incentive, really, it just it's up to amateurs to do it. And biotech is one of the most sustainable ways to solve some of the world's problems because it's a living planet. If you can come up with a living solution, you're working within the system and not against it. And that's where I see biotech being so so full of potential. But it, there's this danger that it's just going to end up being another big industry if amateurs don't jump in early.
4: Can you tell us a bit more about this idea of, of citizen science or open science? I mean, as well as sort of DIY biology, what other, what other um, sort of activities would fall under this? Umbrella. I mean, I presume it doesn't just relate to necessarily having like a lab in your in your shed or whatever, but also to the way you know scientific discussion um, takes place. For example, via the internet or, op- or open source journals or blog, rather than necessarily expensive um, peer reviewed paper journals. Um, oh,
3: uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, crowd crowdsourcing research is um, there's there's two definitions of the word citizen science and one of them is sort of patronising and it's been more common it's where you know real scientists capital or capital S um, get loads of people around the world to help them do their research but the people around the research are, sorry the people around the world are acting more like you know assistants now that's that's great and for some types of research it's essential I'm not saying it's not you know useful but you're not really being a scientist if you just send a little bit of information to someone else to do all the research for you Um you're really helping, it's fantastic. But the other definition of citizen science is where you get everyone to actually take active roles in the research. Now, um, there was a fantastic bit of research done uh, with, I think it was vitamin B9, and it got published in Nature Medicine, a very prestigious journal in uh, in medicine. What, what they did was they got all these people who had their uh, 23andMe genome sequencing results already so people who had availed of this service 23andme which tells you a lot about your genome these people had an enormous amount of data about their genomes, which most of it like is irrelevant to you unless you're looking for it and this guy organized a study where he got people to go out and take a certain type of vitamin b9 supplement um after getting their blood levels of vitamin i think it was vitamin b9 now but after getting their blood levels checked they took a normal supplement and then checked their blood levels and then stop taking the normal supplement and start taking a specialized version of the supplement and then check their blood levels. And he was able to show that this particular gene um, called MTHF4, uh, they called it Samuel L. Jackson's favorite gene, (laughs) um, was tightly associated with whether or not vitamin B9 tablets did anything for you, normal ones, that is. The guy who started the study found that he and several other people in the study with this mutation in this gene could not absorb the normal form and had to take the specialized form. And that had not been known. Now, that's a very engaged sort of research. You're Absolutely. getting all these different people to do uh, their own role in the research. And you don't need a lab to do these sort of things. I mean, these people just had their own um, their, their own gene sequencing results which cost them maybe a few hundred dollars, uh, and they got their doctor to do the blood test. Now, the advantage of this is not only that it makes science easy, but it makes science very trustworthy. There's this big furore over climate gate that drove loads of people to try and, uh, you know, waffle on about how climate change isn't happening and yeah. put their heads back in the sand and it sort of highlighted that the monolithic model of research where there is a research institute that you're expected to trust um is very vulnerable to populist kind of i i, I won't use the language but you know it, it's very vulnerable to the sort of uh, rhetoric that gets thrown out all over the place by rupert murdoch and co um Whereas when you are inviting people to take part in research, uh, kind of an aggregate research, and they're going out and they're taking the temperature measurements and they're looking at the historical records and and sort of pooling their data and coming up with results showing, actually, yes, the climate's completely out of whack, and it has been for decades now. They can't, ref- they can't just say, oh, there's people twisting the results because they can see it themselves. They're doing it. And their friends see that they've done it. And their friends can tell their friends, hey, my friend took part in that study. Actually, climate change is a real issue. So across the board from medicine, climate change, um, you know, all of these different fields of science, which we're expected to just accept and consume, the whole citizen science approach, the involvement of people in actually doing the science really helps people to trust and accept what you know a traditional scientist would have said god you should have just listened to me but that's not how we work we, we like to be involved we like to see what's happening and i think that's what citizen science can do
1: cool that's great um well so we look forward to seeing the next project that you produce for us and <laughs> hopefully we'll talk to you soon when that's a success all right thanks very much cahill
0: and finally, Marie went in an interview from episode 16 with Patrick Denny on the results of the CERN experiments because it is one of the biggest science stories of the year and has profound implications not just for the field of particle physics but for our understanding of the nature of the universe itself. Um, what does this t- observation at CERN mean and is it conclusive proof of particles faster than the speed of light?
5: OK, well, i will probably start by telling you what it is um, they're doing, what has been reported and what all the fuss is about. So, uh, in the last few days, some very interesting news came from CERN in Geneva. Now, CERN is the top nuclear physics institute in Europe. Um, it's uh, underneath the Alps um, in some huge tunnels. Um, it really sounds like Bond movie stuff, but it's, it's yeah. really there. But I've been there. It's pretty remarkable. Um, you would have heard of its name from things like the Large Hadron Collider and uh, the fact that it's the small task of inventing the world wide web. So, a few days ago, uh, a scientific paper, a preprint, uh, was published on the internet and uh, this is kind of the new practice whereby scientists uh, put their work out so that the other scientists and the general public can have a look at it and assess it um, and then it, it goes to formal publication when people review it and it's peer-reviewed. So I have the document here in front of me and uh, it has a very innocent and very um, neutral sounding name of a Measurement of the neutrino velocity with the OPERA detector and the CNGS beam. So um, it doesn't really say much there, but essentially there's an experiment in CERN, in Geneva, called the OPERA experiment. The OPERA experiment's job is to study these elusive particles called neutrinos. Now, what a neutrino is, it's a particle that was its existence was predicted in the 1930s, and it's associated with... um, with nuclear reactions and, and uh, high-energy processes of the kind you find in the sun. And um, mm-hmm. actually, the sun pro- the sun produces so much of them that we get about 65 billion of them
0: um, through every square centimetre of our bodies every second from the sun. Oh, so, God. So there's, there's, a so lot there's of no avoiding them anyway.
5: <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty remarkable. So essentially what happened is this. The, the, the scientists did an experiment. They um, They basically made a beam of neutrinos and uh, they, they used um, a, a number of the processes they have. They have these huge machines in CERN that can make beams. So what basically CERN did is it generated a beam of neutrinos and shot it at a laboratory uh, in the middle of Italy. So it shot at 730 kilometers through the earth itself. So... Um, The way they did it is they had a huge particle accelerator. They hammered particles called protons that are in your body, that are about several kilos of your body weight, uh, into uh, graphite, which is what pencils are made of. But when you do that uh, in a particular way, you're able to generate these elusive particles. Now, the key to all of this is, when the scientists measured the speed, um, they, they essentially measured the time that it took the neutrinos to get from CERN, to um, the Laboratory Nazionale del Gran Sasso in central Italy, 730 kilometers away, and they found when they looked at the overall speed that the neutrinos travelled faster than the speed of light. Now, a fraction faster, only one part in forty thousand faster, but nonetheless faster. So, um, even the guys in CERN did not expect this. They, they, they had a press conference the other day and uh, their spokesman called Antonio Arredato said, uh, look, we don't know what happened. Uh, we're inviting the broader physics community. Look at what we've done. Really look at it. Uh, we've published a 24-page paper. Really look at what we did. We don't know where we've missed it, but we've, we've appeared to have broken this holy grail.
0: What, what would happen if a physical body could travel faster than the speed of light? What does that mean?
5: Well, lots of things. <laughs> and um, First thing, in, in order to travel faster than the speed of light... Um, according to all the most solid basic physics that you're taught um, in college and that is used to, to do everything from make nuclear reactions in power stations to, to, uh, to make the GPS system that goes around the, wor- the world work. And so it's, it, 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 the theory of relativity is proved every single day several thousand times a second. But according to that, you need an infinite amount of energy to go faster than light. So if something is going mm. faster than light, something funny is going on. It means it's somehow got an infinite amount of energy. Worse than that, if things go faster than light, then things can go back in time. Back in time. objects could travel back in time. And uh, that will cause obvious problems because there's a a principle in physics called causality, upon which a whole amount of physics is built. And put quite simply, causality is just the idea that um, a cause precedes effect. You cause something to happen, then Mm -hmm. the thing happens. If things can travel faster than light under current theories, and that goes out the window, it means that um, you can cause something to happen and then it happens before you caused it, wow. uh, which uh, which is pretty crazy.
0: It's quite hard to get your head around. <laughs> it,
5: it is, because be, it, the whole reason it's hard to get our heads around it is, is our intuition tells us that, um, you know, time... Well, is time is linear, forward. isn't it?
0: So it shouldn't go back and forward in circles and things.
5: <laughs> exactly, exactly. So another thing that goes out the window is this, um, this famous equation from Einstein, that the one famous equation in physics, E equals mc squared. Um, to a great degree, that goes out the window, because the, the principles upon which that's built um, are based on uh, speed of light being a uh, speed limit, a uh, particular speed limit. But now that doesn't appear to apply. Um, all the theory underlying uh, particle physics and how all these high-energy particles work up,
0: you know, so they research. they hope they've made a mistake in calculations, but they cannot possibly see where?
5: Well, on the one hand, they hope that they've missed something. And um, from the point of view of experimental physics... physics <laughs> yeah, uh, <you> know, <laughs> otherwise they have a, a
0: whole system. lot of explaining to do.
5: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think it's, it's very good for the general public to see that this is how science is done. People take the data, uh, people make their measurements, people explain how they got the measurements. Then they put them on the table on the table in front of the world and say, look, guys, try and break it for us, Um, we're not sure, we can't spot uh, where we've made the mistake, maybe you can, and it's wonderful to see that that's how science works. I mean, uh, a person like me, or anyone member of the general public can actually download this um, document, it's it's readable, um, if you have some technical background, and uh, all the scientists in the world have access to it and can challenge it, and uh, that's a really, really powerful thing about science, that you can do that. Uh, on the other hand, eh, I, I wouldn't say that they necessarily hope they've made a mistake. Because if it <laughs> yeah. turns out they haven't, they get, there's a Nobel Prize in it. And that's, uh, that's
1: a great nice thing yeah. to have on,
5: on the
0: mantelpiece. Absolutely. Okay, that's all for this special episode of Cybernia. Don't forget, find our website at cybernia.ie. You can find us on Facebook, and you can follow us on Twitter at cybernia. If you have any comments or suggestions, uh, you can email us at podcast at Thank you for listening.